Hello, you greedy stock market pigs, you filthy freaks of nature. How the hell is everybody today? Guys, having a good day? I am great. Today's September 3rd, 2020. This is the QTR Podcast, folks. It's the reason you have an internet connection. Stop lying to yourself about it. Today's episode is brought to you by my patrons. The people that support the podcast, they're important because they give me money. So they get a shout out at the beginning of every podcast. How do you like that? First and foremost, I want to shout out my friends over at the... Oh, what the fuck am I doing? Oh, my exclusive gold and silver provider, JM Bullion. Love those guys. The only place that I buy my gold and silver. Actually just bought some silver from them a couple of weeks ago. I love JM Bullion. They turn around my orders quickly. They're wonderful people to do business with. And... QTR podcast listeners have their own representative at JM Bullion. So if you want to buy a little gold and silver because you don't like the way things look on the old global economic landscape, JM Bullion is the place to do it. They have a decade of experience. They've done over $3 billion in sales. You can either email Kathy with a K, K A T H Y, at jmbullion.com and tell her QTR sent you for free shipping and $5 off, or you can use the link in the podcast description. That is my friends over at JM Bullion. Today's episode also brought to you by my dear friends over at Masterworks. Another platform that I use and I don't just tout and talk shit about, Masterworks is a fantastic way to invest in shares of blue chip art from artists like Banksy, Warhol, uh, and all the names that you could otherwise not afford, uh, but not for the wonderful Masterworks platform that buys art at auction, qualifies the paintings with the SEC, and then takes them public through a Reg A offering so you can actually invest in priceless works of art. Uh, They even have an active secondary trading market, so if you need liquidity, you can sell your shares after you invest in a painting. Uh, I've made a couple of investments with Masterworks. I I love the platform. I just, uh, I've left my... Uh, investments there, and I look forward to seeing where they go in the future. You might remember we interviewed Masterworks CEO Scott Lynn back in May. That's a wonderful podcast to go check out if you want to hear a little bit more about it. And if you're looking for an alternative asset class, because God only knows what's going to happen now, folks, with the market and everything else, you can check out my friends over at masterworks.io. That's masterworks.io and enter promo code QTR to skip their 15,000 person waitlist masterworks.io and of course make sure you see all their disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer this podcast also brought to you by my dear friends over at the Sanglucci steam room my homeboys over at the Sanglucci steam room are doing some wonderful things with tape reading that the rest of the market simply can't touch these are the original OGs of options flow tracking. They track big money coming into the options market. They were doing it before any of these other fucks on the scene were doing it. Lucci and these guys essentially started tracking options flow as a way to look at different momentums and investments in the markets and for day trading. Really, they were the first to do it. When I came on the scene in 2012, Lucci and the Steam Room had just launched Uh, With Wall Street Jesus, they coined the term sweepers, put sweepers, call sweepers. They came up with that. You see that shit on Twitter every day. These guys invented it. They know the options market better than anybody else I've ever met. Check out my dear friends over at the Sanglucci Steam Room. It's the product that might be able to pay for itself if you don't trade like a herb. Get in touch with Lucci. He'll give you a trial. He'll give you a discount. 
whatever you want, or Wall Street Jesus. Tell them QTR sent you. You can find them both on Twitter and in the podcast description. This podcast is also brought to you, last but not least, by my dear friend Pete Hedges over at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is the ultimate online day trading community that was started by Pete because he got tired of the nonsense and the bullshit of other online day trading communities and decided he wanted to start his own. He didn't want to be front run. He didn't just want his money taken and then, you know, not to have access to the people on the site that said that they were going to be the ones helping out and all this other shit. Pete's on his platform every day. All right. They do a live stream. They do a daily watch list. They do investor education. They trade red markets, green markets. Nice job, fuckface. They do red markets, green markets. They trade stocks and options. Look, the point of the matter is fucking Trader's Path is a no bullshit investing community. Pete's an honest guy. I know him. He loves me. He loves the podcast. I love him back. It is my pleasure to send people over to Pete. Check him out. Tell him you want a discount and a free trial too. Any of my partners will work with you if you tell them that I sent you. All right, links are all in the podcast description. All right, this podcast is also brought to you by my friends at Investors Underground. Ken R., Chris B., Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, some of my newest patrons, uh, Gilherm, what's going on? Macro Degenerate, Mitch is in the house. My homeboy John Knott is here. My dear friend Raymond Carota, right around the neighborhood for me. Raymond, what's up, brother? We're going get, to get a beer one of these days. David Matson, my buddy Patrick King, Avery Taylor, Brian Kilgannon, thank you guys for your support and some patrons that have been with me for a while. I'd like to shout them out. Vinny Scarcella, my friend Aqua Bear has been with me for a while. How about Brendan Egan and my buddy Sam Pearson still in the house. What's up, Sam? Thanks for your continued support. This podcast has a three-drink minimum. Used to be two drinks. It's now adjusted for inflation. And finally, last but not least, I am not an investment advisor. This is not investment advice. I hold no licenses, no registrations, this, that, and the other. Please do not get your financial advice from this podcast, folks. I would recommend breaking into an insane asylum and asking somebody there what they think about finance before you listen to this podcast for financial advice. Let's get started with the show today. How does that sound? Point is, do your research elsewhere, fools. All right, let's get started. We got a couple of things that I want to talk about today. First and foremost, did anybody see what happened to the stock market today? Does anybody have a clue? (laughs) The Dow got fucking pasted like a thousand points at one point today, although I think it finished off the lows down only about 750 points. If I was a professional, I would know the number. Hold on. Uh, Got to turn that fucking thing off. Nice job, idiot. Told you, I'm told you, I'm not a professional. Uh, looks like the Dow futures, the Dow futures finished the session down about 760 something points. So that's what we're gonna call it for the day. Uh, the Dow got pasted, the S and P got pasted, the Qs got pasted, the tech boom got pasted. I logged on to Twitter this morning, and the the first tweet I saw was Ross Gerber assuring the market, you know, hey, calm down. This always, uh, this happens. I got to find his tweet here and then I got to read it. (laughs) That's how I knew we were in for some shit today. When I woke up this morning, what the fuck was it? The first tweet that I saw, God, this guy put out a lot of tweets today. Come on, idiot. By the way, I don't do any preparation for this podcast at all. So if you're wondering how come he doesn't have this stuff in advance, it's because I just don't care. All right, where is it? Here it is. Ross Gerber, seven hours ago. This is what some proper September selling is like. 
Profit-taking in tech. Yes, this is part of investing. Typically, September sucks and October. So hold on, stay frosty. Okay, first, I don't know what any of that means. That's the first thing. But I knew as soon as I saw something like that, we were going to get absolutely pasted today. And actually, I got to give some credit to Zero Hedge because they wrote an article yesterday that pretty much explained what the fuck was going on. If you've been paying attention to the market over the last couple of sessions, one of the things that you would have noticed is that the market was rallying at the same time that the VIX was moving higher. And that is kind of strange. Uh, Zero Hedge put up an article yesterday called An Epic Battle is Raging Beneath the Market Surface that I really enjoyed. And it essentially explained that the market was being driven upwards by a gamma squeeze. Um, Market makers kind of getting caught uh, short volatility and uh, and short gamma. And and essentially uh, what this means is that there was a lot of option buying in out-of-the-money options in big tech names. This is a very simplified version. But when that happens... Uh, market makers and contract writers and the people that are placing the orders, they all need to buy shares to hedge. And that ultimately drives the equity price underlying uh, higher. So it's the tail wagging the dog uh, in, a, in, a, in a sense. You know, it's not people uh, drive, it's not people bidding up the price of stocks and buying shares and the calls going up accordingly. It's people buying the calls which is forcing market makers to buy the shares, which then in turn drives up the value of the calls. And this is something that I have kind of alluded to with Tesla in the past because about six or seven months ago, this is right about when the pandemic was starting to unfold. Actually, this was back in January because I remember sitting in the coffee shop in January watching these call buys come into Tesla back when it was like $400 a share uh, pre-split and sitting there thinking to myself, these are some very strange call buys. And in the sense that they were long dated and they were way out of the money. So they were, you know, if you don't know a lot about options, the further out of the money you go, the further from the underlying uh, stock price you go, uh, the more speculative of a bet it becomes. Because if you don't reach that point by the expiration date, your options ostensibly will expire worthless and that's a basic take on it but that is the take and so what I was seeing back in January February was and I can remember it clear as day because it was right around the time that Tesla had that first kind of crazy squeeze uh you know it went from like 400 to 900 the first time and then it blew off at like 950 and tanked 100 dollars the next day but I started to notice then people were coming into like October thousand dollar calls or something you know whatever the strike was that was like furthest out of the money and they were coming into those calls in size I remember because it was so and the bets were so substantial they were multi-million dollar bets and they were so deep out of the money and they were so far out expiration wise that it caught my attention you know if you're somebody like Sang Lucci or you're somebody like me and you sit around and you pay attention to where options flow is coming into the market. I don't watch it every day with a microscope like the guys like Lucci do. Uh, 
um, and the guys in the steam room do. But I do keep an eye on it because for me, it's I always find it interesting that oftentimes big put buys can happen right before bad news occurs. Or I also like to know when there's aggressive call buying, maybe in names that I'm long. So it's just I don't act on it all the time, but I like to keep an eye on it. And after watching that for six, seven, eight years, like I've been watching it, I've got a pretty good pulse on what I think is normal and what can be kind of ignored and what can't be ignored. And these Tesla call buys were happening in such a manner that they caught my attention and they started to make me think, oh, this is kind of strange. This is kind of weird. So lo and behold, here we are six months later and Tesla has gone up, you know, 6x from there or whatever it is and has split um and so when you see me tweeting about interesting stuff in the call options uh, and I don't know to what degree that action can be investigated or looked at but I have to figure that the risk reward if you're Tesla and you need the stock price up for one reason or the other I won't speculate you know whatever we need to raise money or executive compensation. But let's just say in a hypothetical, if you needed that, you would really only have to deploy you know, $20 million of capital to get a $50 billion market cap move. I mean, the risk reward would be absolutely substantial because, because you're using leverage. You don't have to create a massive... Uh, stink in the options market in order to kind of get things moving in the right direction. And then as that happens, the the unwind kind of compounds with short start to cover and, and things like that. And people get caught up in the rally higher. And I think that there is a legitimate chance that a lot of that call buying helped drive Tesla's move. To what extent uh, it was legitimate or not legitimate or where it came from or where it didn't come from. That all remains to be seen, but I happen to notice that. So essentially what is being, what Zero Hedge wrote in this article yesterday um, about the, uh, you know, the street essentially being short gamma um, is the same thing, that people were coming in, likely these Robinhood traders um, coming in and buying deep out of the money calls on all these tech names because tech kept rallying. And then as tech kept rallying, probably the hedge fund started to do the same thing. You know, at-home day traders and people with some more firepower essentially coming in and, uh, and forcing the market makers to buy these shares. Um, and as the article noted yesterday, uh, I'm going to read a a paragraph here from the Zero Hedge article because I think they they nailed it, right? The punchline for all those who have been looking at the market action in recent weeks in stunned silence, you're not alone because as the PM concludes, while most of the market is fading lower, we're seeing a battle between a few big hedge funds and banks who are getting shorter and shorter gamma. Perhaps today's snapback, and this was yesterday, in Tesla and Apple stock, which both saw their market cap plunge by more than $100 billion in the past 24 hours is the start of an unprecedented gamma avalanche as the epic battle waging below the market surface in Vol land between a handful of speculators and dealers reaches its conclusion. And so that essentially could explain why the market was rallying while the VIX was kind of calling bullshit on the move over the last couple of days. 
Um, and so certainly I read that yesterday and I did add some uh, long volatility because I thought it was a great piece. I thought it made a lot of sense. I'd encourage you to go back and read it now if you haven't read it. Um, and those long volatility uh, hedges uh, exploded today because as was speculated about, the market did seem to have a gamma avalanche and, and crashed to the downside today. So today's move may have been, you know, one of a couple of things. It could have just been a gamma shakeout like that, you know, on the way to moving higher. It's fascinating that the SPX is still at, you know, 3,400. I mean, it's really astonishing when you think about it, the fact that we had this giant correction today, but we're still already way past where all-time highs were, and we're certainly much higher than we were back in March and April. Uh, that's another thing I want to talk about briefly is, you know, groupthink and why groupthink in the markets is just not worth paying attention to. What you got to realize is when you have a hundred years of the markets only moving higher, there is an underlying tailwind and a momentum and a there's a foundation to the narrative under the market that A, it's only going to go higher and B, everything's fine and C, if it's not kind of the consensus on the financial media, it's not really going to happen. And you also have to realize financial media and people in the industry, asset managers, wealth managers and all the other dildos that manage ETFs and then take a fee for doing that, that those people all kind of have a vested interest in keeping calm, keeping their clients calm, keeping the masses calm. Hey, everything's under control here. You know, buy on dips, the market only goes up, that kind of bullshit. Which is why even when, even in the midst of something obvious, like back in January, February, when I was pretty much live tweeting stores running out of masks and the pandemic widening in China and the supermarkets kind of becoming overrun as that was happening and predicting that the market was going to fall in February... And March, I was early on that, I know, because I had placed my bets early. But eventually, it happened. And when it did happen, everybody was kind of looking around in shock. I mean, certainly it was hilarious to watch the financial news network anchors literally having meltdowns on Twitter. I mean, people that were are supposed to be the cool, calm, collected hands in the industry are always the first motherfuckers to crack every time the market goes south. You ever notice that? I mean, I always talk about that time that David Faber ran up from the desk, you know, and he was like, oh, I got to make some calls. You know, he had like, he just ran away. He just ran away. He ran away in the middle of a, in the middle of a spot, in the middle of a hit on CNBC about the market crashing. He was like, I got to make some calls, you know, and he just got up from the desk. It's just funny to watch the financial news network anchors, and it's not just Faber. I actually like Faber. He's like one of the guys that I like the most. But there are people on various networks that when the market is falling, they are visibly panicked. And then they take that panic home and they dole it out on Twitter too. So I was just kind of sitting back in February and March after saying in January, hey, this is going to be a big deal. This could really put pressure on the markets, etc., etc. And then finally watching these guys melt down, it was great because, you know, I knew what was coming. I was prepared for what was coming. That was the other thing, too. I was going out and buying my pandemic preparations in advance. I was doing it in January. Somebody saw Lysol wipes in my car the other day. They're like, how do you get those? They're like a 
They're like an unbelievable commodity. I was like, I got a whole fucking basement full of these. Like, <laughs> right next to my guns and my ammunition. I'm prepared to protect my Lysol wipes. So don't get any fucking ideas. And stop eyeing up the ones in my car, too. I don't like the way you're looking at them. <laughs> but the point is, you know, I did all that shit in advance. And that's why I always had a beef with people. They say, that, oh, this guy's price gouging. In, like, March, they arrested some guy that worked at a 7-Eleven for selling hand sanitizer for $29 a bottle or whatever. It's like, hey, this guy had the foresight to go and get all this shit before the shit hit the fan. He had, like, rented a warehouse in New Jersey or something and took took order of 15 pallets of hand sanitizer or something and then turned around and sold it at his family's convenience store for uh, $29 a bottle, and they arrested the guy for price gouging. I'm like, that's not price gouging. That's called being in front of the market, all right? That's called being a savvy and intelligent investor. That guy should be managing a portfolio at fucking Goldman Sachs. Instead, he's probably trying to make a sum total of, you know, $55 a day for his family running his convenience store. I hope that guy did all right. But the point is, he had the foresight when people on television didn't and when the big names in finance didn't have the foresight nobody was saying in January you know maybe Chris Martinson a couple of these other guys were out there saying that though this was going to be a big deal there were some people that that were saying that shit but nobody in the mainstream media like I always say I watched this become a mainstream media story from the point where I knew it was going to happen and it wasn't even coming up on the crawl on major news networks to the point where it kind of made the crawl, but it wasn't the lead. And, you know, hey, there were a couple more cases here and there to eventually when, you know, that was it. It was the only story. It was the only story. Because remember before that, the Democrats were fucking, you know, doing the impeachment thing. That was the story beforehand. And uh, I, I don't know. I think the Democrats have a lot of balls for criticizing Trump about his handling of the pandemic when Nancy Pelosi was running around Chinatown in San Francisco. This is like late January, early February, telling people, no, it's it's racist to be afraid of the virus. Come shop in Chinatown. One of the first calls I made was like my mother in January. I said, mom, how are you? I love Chinese people. By the way, don't go anywhere and get any fucking Chinese food. Is that racist? No, it's not racist. Jesus. If I told you there was a virus originating in Italy and was likely being carried to the United States by people who had traveled to and from Italy, how likely would you be to go out and get chicken parm from your favorite Italian restaurant on the daily? You just wouldn't be. It's just common sense. But this idiocy that I'm talking about all kind of segues into the point that I'm trying to make, which is that in March and April, CNBC rolled out a bunch of experts And I'll say this about CNBC. I do have it on here at the office. So for what it's worth and all the shit talking that I do, I I am counted. I'm I'm one of, you know, the the 40,000 viewers or whatever they have on a daily basis because I like to see what people say when they come on. Oftentimes it's fodder for ridicule, which is fantastic. But but yeah, it's kind of like I, I watch it kind of like the same way, you know, I watch a baseball game, which is... I don't really watch it. I just kind of will put it on and then I'll mill around the house and have a couple of beers. And then if I hear like Tom McCarthy's voice go up, you know, oh, it's going on left field. Ah! Then I'll kind of peer in, you know, and see what's going on. Same with the financial news networks. You know, I'm, I'm pretty much listening on the background and then I hear something like Ackman come on and say, we're slipping into the seventh circle of financial hell. 
I'd be like, all right, well, maybe I'll take a look at the TV now. That's an interesting thing that you don't hear every day. <laughs> yeah, that's something. Maybe I'll just peek one eye in the room. The point is, in March and April, they rolled out a bunch of people, all of whom said we had to retest market lows. And certainly, I don't have the time to go through the footage, nor am I interested in doing actual work or research for this podcast, but I watched it every single day. What happened was the market got fucking porked, okay? And I think the market hit its low on the day that Ackman came on and said, uh, hell is coming. And after that, there was... I don't know, a month or two where they welcomed on everybody. Gunlock was the guy that I remember. I mean, he was the most prominent guy because I'll listen to what Gunlock has to say. I find him interesting. But Gunlock was on a bunch with a bunch of other randos. And basically all these guys were saying we got to retest lows. We got to retest the lows. We have to go back down to the uh, the S&P lows here before we get a chance to move higher. Everybody was calling for a double bottom except... Fucking fringe finance, financial fuckwit, me. I'm sitting around here, all right, drinking a beer by myself in my 1,200 square foot condominium palace that I own with my tattoos and my whiskey. And I'm thinking to myself, well, it's interesting what the Fed has done here. Like it or don't like it, and certainly I don't like it. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes, too. But they basically have come out and committed to full-scale quantitative easing and that, you know, QE that basically is never going to end and has no boundaries and has no limits and is just pretty much a full-scale bailout of the stock market any way that they need to do it. The way that I saw the Fed's announcement back in Q1 was we will buy the entire stock market if we have to to prevent it from going down. And people say, oh, well, they're not buying equities. Yeah, well, they're buying corporate bonds, which is essentially buying equities. Um, And they're buying ETFs, which are very close to equities, if you ask me. So I consider that argument a win, although I do think at some point I will be validated in the future when they actually do buy equities. I think that will happen. Uh, at some point in the future, despite many of my guests and fine thinkers that I know telling me that I'm wrong about that. Wouldn't be the first time somebody told me I'm wrong about something. And if I'm right, it wouldn't be the first time that I could turn around and wave it right in their face when I get it right, like I'm doing right now with the double bottom bullshit. So anyways, I had been saying since March that this is a pornographic amount of quantitative easing, and there's really no reason for the market to go back and test the lows you know from a market mechanics standpoint there was now actual firepower backing up the markets you know the banks essentially have unlimited liquidity uh the fed pretty much made it known that they weren't going to let the bond market fail in any way shape or form which of course carries with it a ton of moral hazard and it's just a terrible idea in general because bond pricing then becomes horribly askew and doesn't account for risk properly. Um, And so I just said, look, I think what's going to happen here is the Fed's going to run the printing press and gold and the S&P are both going to go apeshit. And God forbid, you know, looking out in the long view, and I, I do, I will admit this, you know, back in March, April, we didn't have a lot of visibility as to how things were going to go with the virus. So there were a lot of unknowns with the virus. You got to remember, in February, there were 
serious unknowns. Like, is China lying about the death rate? That was a big one that I was concerned about. What is the long-term effects of the virus, which we still don't know? You know, what what does the body's antibody response look like, you know, uh, and how long will we keep antibodies? And w- there were really, in February, a lot of very frightening unknowns that could have put this virus that really could have resulted in the economy, you know, being in much worse shape than it is now, which I know is tough to imagine because the economy has been walloped as a result of our reaction to the virus. But in February, we didn't really have visibility on anything. And it was March, we first started to get a little inkling of visibility into the virus, into the infection fatality rate, into how serious it was going to be, into how... And in March, I did a periscope called being a um, contrarian at the time in the time of a pandemic or something like that. It's on my periscope. You can look it up. It's still up there. And essentially what I asserted in March was that if the virus is at some point able to get under, if we're able to get it under control at some point, whether through a vaccine or we find out that it's not as bad as we think it is, et cetera, that the Fed has created such a tailwind. I mean, essentially, this would be like the Fed is just spraying an aerosol can of hairspray, you know, nonstop. And if we get a piece of good news, it's just like, you know, flicking a lighter in front of that. I mean, the market would just take off. It would just be fucking rocket fuel. But we would need that spark, right? We would need that lighter to kind of make the uh, the blowtorch happen, And I still don't think that we've gotten there yet because psychologically, I still don't think we're over the virus. Um, And in March, admittedly, it was very difficult to figure out where we were going to be thought-wise in the long term about the virus. I mean, it's tough to put yourself in that situation now because it's fucking September. But in March, there were still a lot of unknowns. So I remember talking about the things that I was talking about in that periscope in March and thinking to myself, I really have to couch this in in a in a big way because there's a lot we're not sure about but i first started to explore the idea that if the psychological shock had hit its peak and the shock of the shutdowns had hit their peak or would soon hit their peak and that the scientific community was collaborating together the global scientific community i remember saying that's a lot of fucking torque to be working on one problem. If they were all going to work together to try and get a solution, that really when you look out 8, 12, 14 months, there is a case for the market being higher. And, you know, the realization was that, look, the Fed is going to try to paper over the economy, which is why the market is at all-time highs when we have 30 million people unemployed. They don't, that just doesn't make sense. The disconnect between the two is widening and has been widening as a result of monetary policy. Um, this, of course, widens the inequality gap as well, something that the uh, Fed governors don't seem to understand. But again, whatever. I figured the pandemic out. I figured that out. You guys are being bested by a 37-year-old with a dent in his car bumper and a bald spot. So great job, guys. Uh, keep wearing your suits. Enjoy that. <laughs> Right now, I'm literally wearing pajamas. (laughs) And so as March turned to April and April turned to May and we started to get into the summer, I just noticed 
there was a point during Bill Ackman's Herbalife presentation where he said there's there's nothing there's no research that we've done that has flown in the face of the conclusions we've already drawn or some statement like that. And that's how I felt about what we were finding out moving forward, right? In March and February, there was this real uncertainty. And then in April, you know, it was like, yeah, still a little bit of uncertainty, but we would get these little nuggets of information. Oh, you know, so-and-so's on a phase two trial now instead of phase one. And so-and-so was able to induce an antibody response. And the uh, infection fatality rate had ticked down slightly. There was some volatility in the data in certain states because states were opening and closing and reopening and reclosing. And so the numbers were spiking here, there, and all over the place. And then they were coming back down. But as April turned to May and May turned to June and July, all of a sudden, every piece of information that we were getting, at least from what I was seeing and the way that I was looking at it, seemed to be encouraging of the idea that we're going to return to some normalcy at some point. And even Fauci made some concession like that, that, you know, in in two years, we should have it under control and it shouldn't be a problem or some shit like that. I can't remember what he said. But heading into the summer, I started to feel a sense of normalcy again. I think a lot earlier than most people. I mean, I think there's a lot of people out there that are still kind of freaking out about this thing. Um, and rightfully so, but we know so much about it now that we didn't know, including, you know, one of the big worries I had mentioned on past podcasts was how long do the uh, antibodies that the body produces stick around for this coronavirus? And that was a big thing, right? If it was only a month or two months, that could be a big problem. That could mean we could get it and get it again and get it again and get it again. And it turns out, you know, I saw a study yesterday where they said, all right, well, at least four months. But a couple of weeks prior to that, there was another study out that suggested your T-cell memory might provide long-lasting immunity. And then there was another study out right around the same time that suggested that the virus wasn't even novel. That there was some pre-existing immunity we already had. Uh, because of this being a coronavirus. So from having other things, there are people that may have had pre-existing community uh, immunity, rather. And this is just one study, so don't quote me on any of this. But that would suggest that it was not a novel virus, which was like, if you remember going back to February, March, I mean, that's why people were panicking. You know, I can't tell you how many press conferences and scientific uh, statements I read where people saying, oh, it's the fact that this is novel that makes it such a big deal because the body has never seen it before. And so immunity is going to be, you know, it's a locked box. Nobody knows whether or not we'll, you know, how this is going to affect us. Well, if it turns out it's not, that is going to be a huge push forward to herd immunity. And that would also seem to potentially uh, explain some of the asymptomatic cases because there's something like 35 or 40 percent of cases they're saying now are asymptomatic so those things all kind of gel with each other in the meantime you know everybody too was saying this is another thing three months ago four months ago five months ago people were saying oh it's 18 months to two years for a vaccine and i said more than once if we get the torque of the scientific community Working on a vaccine together, we'll have one by the end of the year this year. I, I kept saying, you know, think about the holidays. They're going to want to have one by the holidays. 
And that's kind of what headlines are starting to suggest. October, November for very, very early vaccines. And so we'll have to see. Obviously, people are going to make the point, A, you know, I'm not going to take the vaccine. I know a lot of people that are saying that. That's fine. B, that they won't take the first vaccine because they'll want more safety data, um, which is also understandable. Um, so, and a couple of companies have committed, I think, to phase four trials, which is basically where you continue to do clinical trials after it's already been approved to see what the long-term effects are. Regardless of what you think about the vaccine and whether you're going to take it or not take it or whatever, uh, it will be available. And that, I think, uh, is noteworthy. And so that's part of one of the reasons that I have been saying, you know, heading into next spring, next summer, I think that travel and hotels and leisure and those types of names will have a better recovery than most people think. You can go back to my podcast called Be Your Own Oracle of Fucking Omaha, where I talk about Buffett dumping the airlines uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago at this point, and why I thought, you know, airlines might need to be examined after you account for their new capital structures as a potential investment going forward, because they will, as they're doing now, shave staff, shave off flights, and uh, at some point, there'll be a buy. I don't know when, and I don't know how. Um, but I would be lying if I said I didn't have a little exposure to them already. Um, and so I think even today we saw Carnival Cruise Line said, all right, well, we're going to resume in Europe. Still going to be rocky roads ahead, but you have to think it's at the times where you think everything is fucked for an industry that really the best investments happen. You know, it was in March when Ackman was saying hell is coming that the market bottomed. I mean, if you were buying on that day when it was peak panic on CNBC, You've absolutely murdered it since then. Now, we can talk about whether or not that's a good thing because essentially, as I said earlier, the Fed has substituted the entire economy with a printing press. Um, but that's part of the reason why I've, my positioning personally is I like to be long equities and long gold right now because I think they're both going to go up. I think the Fed will continue to paper over the economy and that will drive the stock market higher. And I think that gold will continue to go up in dollar terms as a result as the Fed uh, continues to mercilessly beat the dollar's purchasing power into submission. We had a nice headline today from China who said, ah, we're going to start dumping U.S. Treasuries or we're going to buy less U.S. Treasuries, something that I've talked about for a while. Look, with fiats, it's a global confidence game, right? So when you're dealing with money that isn't backed by anything, you rely on the confidence of the rest of the world. And you, if you say, you know, listen, if I take out a pad right here from my drawer and I fucking draw a picture of Nancy Pelosi getting her hair done at a salon in San Francisco and I hand that to you and tell you it has value, well, you have to believe me. There's nothing on that paper that gives it value other than me saying, hey, I'm telling you, I'm a great fucking artist. People like me. This is going to be worth something at some point or it's worth something now. You know, it's a confidence game and fiat money's the same way. Except instead of me handing you a piece of paper from my desk here, it's China handing the U.S., you know, their currency and the U.S. handing China their currency and Europe handing the U.S. euros and the U.S. handing Europe U.S. dollars, right? So it's it's just, it's not that far removed from my example, to be honest with you. So if that psychology starts to change and confidence starts to collapse and the dollar 
is removed as global reserve currency at some point, or currencies wind up being pegged to gold. I think what's going to happen is China is going to come out and say, we're pegging our currency to gold. I think they're going to try to beat us to the punch on it. I just get this feeling that with tensions rising and that they're going to be the ones to try to disrupt things. And there's no doubt that these guys would love to uh, be looked at as the global economic leaders and the global, uh, you know, uh, reserve currency. So I think something fucky this way comes, as the old expression goes. And we'll have to see. But the point is, that's why I think gold is going to go up. And there's great videos, by the way, too. Uh, Peter Schiff just did two great videos from The Money Show. Rick Rule did a great uh, video from The Money Show also that I watched today. And if you go back and look at George Gammon's podcast, Rick Rule does a great interview on there explaining a lot of this. And the Kitco interview with Peter Schiff and Jim Rickards is another good one. Helps explain a lot of what it is that I'm talking about in the technical terms that I'm not giving you because... That's not my job. I don't do technical terms. I sit here and talk shit without facts or evidence, and that's how my podcast goes. If you want a guy that wears a suit, go watch the Peter Schiff podcast. I highly recommend him. All right. So the point of the matter is the Fed is papering over the economy, and that's creating these insane distortions in the stock market. And on top of that, you have a you know, talk about throwing like a can of kerosene into the fire that's already burning. You have these Robinhood accounts. So the government turns around and hands like 5 million unemployed millennial imbeciles, $1,200. And these guys all open Robinhood accounts and all put their money in there. And they all put it in Tesla calls and Tesla goes up and these people make all these huge gains. And all of a sudden everybody thinks they're a fucking stock market investor. And now you got all this kind of, you have this weird psychological shift in the market where like a fundamental valuation doesn't matter anymore because of what the Fed's doing. So you can take that out of the equation. If you're like some stockbroker that started in the 80s, you have my condolences because everything you thought you knew about the market and everything you had learned about the market is completely useless at this point. (laughs) You spent your career trying to come up with how the market works in your head using fundamental variables and uh, you know your experience on Wall Street. And it just, it just doesn't matter anymore because the market doesn't respond to the economy. It responds to the Fed. And market participants aren't guys in suits and ties uh, making a market or people on the uh, open outcry floor at the CME making a market. They are unemployed people that are getting money from the government for nothing that are opening up accounts where on their phone, it looks like the stock market is a video game. So if you were a market professional in the 80s and the 90s and you were an old school broker and you're trying to figure out what the fuck's going on now, you probably don't have a clue. And I don't think any of the market has a clue because on top of, again, rigging the entire market, which is what the Fed's doing, you've got this wild card where you're like, you're throwing in like, five million drunk frat guys and just like hey dudes you know have at it man it's like that <laughs> the video i posted yesterday with dudes like yeah i just wanted to put it all in billabong man <laughs> so talk about a clusterfuck of epic proportions like is it any wonder that nobody has any clue what's going on even paul krugman gave up today i think he tweeted out this is krugman's tweet from an hour ago So I hear something happened in the market today. Anyone who tells you they know that why thereby proves that they have no idea what they're talking about. 
He's kind of right, in a sense. I mean, I, of course, took the chance to ridicule him publicly. <laughs> why do that even if he's, uh, you know, why not do that even if he's right? But he's kind of right. I mean, this is supposed to be America's greatest living economist and Nobel Prize winner. Just throwing his hands up in the air. Eh, fuck it. Nobody knows what's going on anymore. <laughs> Nobody fucking has a clue. And that's really what's going on. Because tomorrow, if you woke up and the Dow was up 5,000 points tomorrow, or it was down 5,000 points tomorrow, if the market fell 20% tomorrow or gained 20% tomorrow, which is, of course, a pornographic move for an index, right? Would never happen. But if it did, would you really be that surprised at this point? No, you wouldn't. You know, you show that to the broker from the 80s who made his career buying blue chip stocks and reinvesting his dividends and he'd have a fucking stroke immediately because it's just it's not what markets are supposed to do but you got to understand folks these aren't markets anymore we don't have a market there's no market you know when 30 million people are unemployed and stocks go up that's not a market and I I have to hand it to some of the Democrats because some of them have been bitching and moaning about inequality it's not, you know, what they should be paying attention to is what the Fed is doing. They're, they're kind of, they're, they're shooting the messenger, right? They're turning around and directing their ire towards billionaires. It's not Jeff Bezos' fault Jeff Bezos is a billionaire. He fucking showed up to work every day. Would he still be rich if the Fed didn't run monetary policy the way that it does? Yes, but probably not as rich. What's putting these guys' net worth into fucking hyperdrive is the Fed. That's what Democrats need to focus on. You want to meet me in the middle somewhere if you're a Democrat? And I know a lot of Democrats dislike me now, judging by various obscene emails and direct messages I've got. But if you want to meet me somewhere in the middle, we can talk about inequality because I think it's a problem and I think it's driving a lot of the social unrest in our country. And we can talk about that, but we got we to gotta introduce the Fed into the conversation. Because they're really what's driving it, right? So, look, I think in terms of COVID, I think we're seeing peak hysteria. I think we may even be over peak hysteria. There was a headline today that Warner Brothers had paused filming of the Batman movie because one production staff member tested positive for COVID. It's like, yeah, if you guys haven't come to the realization that everybody is pretty much walking around with this fucking thing at this point, or, you know, one in 20 people out there, no matter what you're doing. If you're production staff, if you're the key grip, if you're the right outside linebacker for the Los Angeles Rams, if you're the starting center fielder for the Philadelphia Phillies, if you're the guy that picks up my fucking recycling on Tuesdays and Thursdays, it doesn't matter. One out of 20 people you know probably has this fucking thing already. I also think it's been here longer than we thought, which, again, sounded stupid when I said it in February and March, but now it looks like I may be a little bit more on point and on the ball with that. COVID is everywhere, you know? What are we going to do? Even if we shut down and we lock down, this thing is, you know, judging by the data, it looks like it's had its way with the people it wants to have its way with. And, uh, and it's just going to be a thing. It's going to be out there. COVID. You know, you got the flu. You got bronchitis. You got pneumonia. You got COVID. And life will go on. I'm not trying to denigrate 
the people that have died because of it. And I know people that have passed away because of it. And actually, a friend of mine that I was running with yesterday was telling me they had a family member they lost because of it. I'm certainly not trying to denigrate that, but I am just trying to inject a little bit of reality. Things are going to normalize. I mean, the market has already normalized, according to Neil Kashkari, but the psychology behind this is going to normalize. And even we're seeing it, like I said before, I I see some breaks with Fauci saying, you know, he commented on that T-cell study saying, oh, this is good news if it's true. You know, oh, okay, cool. So there are some things to look forward to. It isn't all doom and gloom, right? And for the Democrats, it's funny because it's a do as I say, not as I do type thing. Right? They want to shut down the states. They want full ultimate control of everything. But Nancy Pelosi can go get her hair done. Okay, thank you very much. Does that not sum it up for you? You ever see those photos of Fauci when he went to the baseball game and he's sitting out in the stands and he doesn't have his mask on? And he's sitting in a chair right next to somebody at a baseball game talking to him. You know, you see the politicians. They're out. You catch them without the face mask on. It's just like, all right. You know, they're... Their actions are doing something different than what they're saying. Philadelphia's mayor, they just caught him in Maryland, dining indoors somewhere without a mask on. Meanwhile, Philadelphia remains shut down for indoor dining at his call. You know, hypocrite much? I mean, that's just nonsense. That's just bullshit, right? So you're starting to see the actions of these people change and as a result policy will eventually loosen and we will get well on our way to uh whatever fucking hemorrhoids 2021 has to throw at us um and i think covid will be in our lives but will become somewhat of an afterthought and hey this is me just looking out 12 months 18 months whatever all right you say stop stop trying to not shed light on it it's a dangerous public health threat i know all that shit i know but you know Stock market is a forward-looking indicator. I try to be a forward-looking thinker. And this is just what I'm thinking. I can envision a world where things have normalized way more than they have now. Partly because I'm seeing some of it. I'm seeing it in the actions of even close family members that I love that would never, ever, ever, ever in a million billion years leave the house when this news broke have gone out and they have dined indoors now for the first time in six months so i'm starting to see it you're starting to see some normalization the kids are kind of going back to school now so um not all of them but some of them are and i think that going forward um that will provide uh, an additional tailwind to a market that is already on mark mcguire style steroids and thus you have my call for the market moving higher and gold moving higher. Certainly, the Fed doesn't seem like they want to stop with their QE. Bostic said today we should be concerned about the risk of asset bubbles right after saying the Fed already has tools to get inflation back to desired levels. Let me explain something to you. The Fed doesn't have any tools. The only tool they have is a printing press. They can turn it on. They can turn it off. That's it, all right? They're not splitting the atom, all right? They're not discovering new elements on the periodic table, They're just putting commas and zeros in a spreadsheet somewhere in the New York Fed office, all right? And we're supposed to, you know, believe that they know what they're doing and that's, that's, uh, you know, the end-all, be-all solution for all economic problems in the history of mankind going forward. I don't fucking think so, okay? Daly said yesterday, in her lifetime, the role for fiscal policymakers has never been stronger. What does that mean? 
It means me, 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 me. Everybody pay attention to me. I got to do things. The entire global economy hinges upon what I eat for lunch, whether or not I use honey mustard or barbecue sauce on my chicken fingers. The world is watching. I'm important. I'm a central banker. (laughs) Fed's Bostic says Fed is going to be willing to be more stimulative than it's been. That was today at around noon. Fed is going to be willing to be more stimulative than it's been. Well, what does that mean? I mean, pretty much we have unlimited QE with no boundaries. So how do you get more stimulative than that? I mean, honestly, what do you do? What else is left? You just buy everything, you know, buy the whole fucking thing. That's it. The Fed balance sheet is just going to continue to expand quicker than they can, you know, forget about tightening. It's never happening. It's never happening. The debts will all be monetized. The dollar will be beaten mercilessly and choked and maimed and abused until, you know, the dollar index is 62 or whatever. (laughs) And that's their only plan. So who's really the forward-looking thinker now? The idiot with the bald spot with the tattoos or the Fed that really didn't plan for this pandemic in advance and doesn't really have any type of creative solution and was in a precarious position already coming into this. October 2019, I did a speech in Las Vegas called Our Bullshit Economy. It's on my YouTube channel. I know, fucking self-promotion. But the point is, I said I'm here to call the bluff. Jerome Powell said going in and intervening in the repo markets wasn't QE. And I said, motherfucker, I'm here to call that bluff. I just had six beers at the pool at the win, and now I'm on a stage in front of a room full of fucking people that paid like $1,000 a seat to listen to me talk. You want to talk about proof that the world is fucked? Oh, my God. (laughs) What am I doing on a stage anywhere? So that's that for now. Tomorrow we'll have to see what happens to the market. Could go up or down. That's my analysis for the day. Hey, and if that's Paul Krugman's analysis, and that's mine too, really, I think the question we should all be asking is, where's my fucking Nobel Prize too? I have a whole list of things here that I wanted to talk about, and I didn't talk about any of them, but I don't feel like talking anymore, so that's going to conclude today's podcast. Maybe I will do one tomorrow. Uh, Strap in and hold on tight, and we'll see what happens here, folks. This has been your daily dose of fringe finance. From the one, the only QTR, I got shit to do tonight. I'm out of here. Peace.